Welcome to episode 166 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas. Excited about today's episode after an excellent weekend of racing from Houston to Phoenix to San Diego. We've got lots of current events to talk about. And then I'll get to my main topic where I'm going to give you eight common training mistakes and what to do about those mistakes. So you'll be able to see if you're making any of these common mistakes and then hopefully course correct to get more out of your performances. But first, as I promised, we've got current events to discuss. We'll start and we'll move west to east. We start with the U.S. Cross Country Championships, which happened in San Diego this past weekend. It was a lighter attended event this year because you have some athletes prepping for U.S. indoors because World Indoors is happening this year. And then you also have, of course, some athletes prepping for the Olympic trials, opting not to race cross-country at this time. So these events were not as well attended as normal, but still important, and you had some pretty impressive results. So on the women's side, Natasha Rogers completed her comeback and earned her first title as a member of the Brooks Hansen's Distance Project. And so she won on the women's side in a pretty solid, dominant fashion and more or less ran that one, won that one going away. She finished the 10K distance in 35.45 to beat Paige Stoner, who finished second in 36.07. Paige is from the Reebok Boston Track Club. And then Carrie Verdon from the Boulder Track Club ran a 36.24 to round out the podium. Got to give a shout out to Sarah Pease, who is a former Rogue Athletic Club athlete who earned the fourth place spot just off the podium in 36-39. Sarah is now running for the Haute Volée, and it's really impressive to see her still going strong. Sarah is a former steeplechaser on the track who has since moved to the marathon and has, has been doing a variety of races as well as cross country just like this weekend. And on the men's side, Anthony Rodich got the win in dominating fashion by over 20 seconds. He is of the U.S. Army group that trains out of Colorado Springs. His teammates led, or he led his teammates to a sweep of the podium. Emmanuel Bohr, the steeplechaser, was second in 30.58. And Lawi Lalang was third in 31 minutes flat to round out the podium in dominating fashion from that U.S. Army group coached by Scott Simmons. So impressive results from U.S. cross country. Would have been nice to have deeper fields there, but I take nothing away from those victories from Natasha and Anthony as they were both, as I said, done in dominating fashion. And then as we move east, we go to Phoenix next to talk about the results from Steph Bruce as well as Kellen Taylor who ran side-by-side in the Rock and Roll Phoenix Half Marathon where they finished in a time just north of 109. It was a workout for them and one note is that that course was deemed short by about 285 meters unfortunately because one of the turnarounds was mismarked so that 109 time is not an official half marathon And it doesn't really matter anyway because it was just a training effort for them, but a really solid result for them and shows that they're definitely fit and on form, especially after midweek they did a big workout doing 15 times one mile repeats 
in a big marathon workout. So they were doing this rock and roll Phoenix on tired legs. So really solid result from those two shows that they're on form. Also have to give a shout out to the trail runner, Jim Walmsley, who ran a 102 and change at this race. Now, again, you got to add about 45 seconds to the time in order to make it equivalent, given that the distance was short. So he was probably somewhere in the 103 range. But for a trail runner and a winner of West Western States, who off happens to also be training for the trials, that's a really, really impressive result. And there's lots of talk in the trail world about what Jim has been doing training-wise as he's been putting in some really insane 140-plus-mile weeks to get ready for the trials and doing some big workouts. And so there's lots of buzz about if he can potentially make waves at the trials and this result shows that he's also on form. So that'll be interesting to see. And then wrapping Phoenix, we head further east to the Houston area, which had a perfect weather morning. It was a little bit windy, but still overall really good temperatures and weather for the both the full and the half there. And and the races did not disappoint, particularly for the Americans in the half marathon. You had both the deepest women's and the deepest men's field ever within half marathons in this event this past weekend. You had seven women run under 70 minutes in the half and then 14 American men run under 62 flat, both records for a half marathon. So the deepest U.S. half marathons ever with really solid results across the board. The top American, as I think I predicted with Sarah Hall in a time of 108 and change, and she bested Molly Huddle, who was second, in a time just north of 69 flat. And interestingly, Molly actually ended up running 24 total miles for the day. So that's something to note, and she definitely wasn't going all out there. And it did seem like Sarah was going, in fact, all out as she ran with the international leaders for a bit. Rounding out the podium was Molly Seidel, an up-and-comer who will be making her marathon debut at the trials. She's an interesting name to watch. Then you also had Lindsay Flanagan running 69.37. Becky Wade with a big PR, the Rice University graduate who knows Houston well. Ran a 69.40 to get a couple of minute PR. And then Olafine Tuliamuk ended up the teammate to Stephanie. And Kellen ended up in 69.49. Just a little bit slower than her PR. As she also was doing this more in workout fashion. And, and also said she had a cold coming into this one that affected some of her some of her prep. So as you look at these results... It's impossible to draw conclusions for the trials because this is just, for some, a training effort. And even if it was an all-out race, we know that racing an all-out half marathon doesn't necessarily translate to the marathon well. And so we can't really draw any conclusions except to say that these women are fit and they will be ready in some form or fashion for February 29th. On the men's side, really deep field as well. Again, 14 men under 62 flat, led by 
the great Jared Ward Olympian who's trying to get his second Olympic team as a marathoner. He ran 61.36 in what looked to me like somewhat of a controlled effort as he finished the line. He finished crossing the line looking pretty smooth. He beat just barely Reed Fisher from 10 Man Elite and Nico Montanez who ran 61.37 and 61.38 respectively. But then from there, you had Reed Buchanan, you had Brogan Austin, Sam Chalenga coming back out of retirement to get under 62, and Matt Lano as well. So really stacked results from the men as well. And again, some of these athletes will be showing up in the trials, and it will be interesting to see the implications there. But I got to say, I like where Jared Ward is at and... As I mentioned last episode, I do think he's got a shot to potentially win the trials, which would be a huge result for him. So we shall see. So those are your current events for the weekend. Now let's dive into our main topic. We're going to be talking about eight common training mistakes that some of you may be making right now. For longtime listeners, I don't think these will come as a surprise to you. But I do want to make sure that even if you know what I'm going to say or you nod your head and recognize these messages from the past, that you still take a good look in the mirror and make sure that you're not doing some of these things because I do believe that if you are, they will hold you back from reaching your best potential, your fastest running self. So here we go. Again, eight of them. We'll start with number one. The number one training mistake I see quite often is, as you might expect, not running enough. Not running enough. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about having or requiring that you do high mileage, but I think there's a lot of people out there that aren't running enough days to start or running enough total mileage given whatever their current potential in order to reach their full potential. So let's break those two parts down. So not running enough days. Now I hear this very often, especially for newer athletes who might join my group or for those that are interested in joining my group here in Austin, they'll come to me and they'll say, how many days a week should I be running? And in our program, our schedule has at really at a minimum five days a week of running for half marathoners and really a minimum of six days a week of running for marathoners. Now, people can do both. People could do five or six days, but it's very rare that I will have somebody that I prescribe doing four days a week or less. Now, of course, there are exceptions to that rule. And particularly in the case of uh, of those who might have significant tra- cross-training activities like triathletes, that seems to be the most common exception to that rule where somebody might be getting other aerobic activity in instead of running. But for the most part, I recommend that someone do five or six days a week of running. Now, not only will people say that might be too much for them, but they might also say that they can't physically run that much because it will quote-unquote injure them or hurt them and that's where the fallacy really steps in because someone who isn't running enough 
actually, in many cases, is opening themselves up to a greater potential for injury because they're not working in those active rest, those active recovery days in order to in, in order to let all the training loads kind of fit together. And so you've heard me often talk about recovery days or active rest. Well, that's the glue that really keeps your training loads manageable so that you can get that blood flow on those easy days, which helps promote healing so that you're having some active rest between those hard days or those fast days. And so many times somebody will come to me and say, well, I can't run more the next days a week because it'll get hurt. And my response is, well, actually, you need to run more in order to prevent injury by adding in some additional easy recovery days. So that becomes a big part of the equation. Now, oftentimes, someone who says that also is typically going too fast all the time. And so they're not allowing themselves the proper recovery really ever. And that's the recipe for injury. But if you add in more days, especially add in super easy recovery days, then that's going to allow those muscles and tendons to adapt to the training load. It's going to allow the blood flow needed after a hard day or a long day in order to heal those working muscles and prepare the tendons and ligaments for additional load so that you can get out there and go another day. And so, again, those easy days, those additional days become the glue that kind of makes it all fit together. And so there is just that foundational piece here of making sure you're doing enough days really in order to stay healthy as a runner. Now, some people will say, well, I can't because of some issue with my knees. Well, if now generally that's because you're you have imbalances in your glutes and maybe your stabilizing muscles so that your knees are picking up more load. And so it may not be about running less, but rather running a little bit more, again, incorporating those easy days while also strengthening those supporting muscles, those stabilizing muscles that allow the, the other muscles and tendons to pick up the load versus the joint, which becomes the problem that you might be feeling. And so adding days, really important, even if those days for some of you might only be 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, short, easy runs. And even if you have to run walk on some of those days, that's okay, because that's going to, again, be that glue that helps everything kind of fit together. And so more running days is a big part of it, but then also ultimately more running volume is a big part of of reaching your potential. And again, that's from whatever your starting point might be. It doesn't mean you have to go and train and run 70 plus miles a week. For somebody who might be doing 10 right now, miles per week, more equals more than 10. So that could, that could mean working up to 15 to 20. If you're in the 15 to 20 range now, it could mean working up to 25 to 30. You want to, of course, do that gradually and in a way that's smart and allows your body to adapt to the load as you go but running more mileage especially easy mileage is going to allow your aerobic to system to develop in ways that you're not gonna be able to do running less mileage and what does that easy running do for you i've talked about this before 
but I'll remind you again that changes your physiology. Easy running changes your physiology from the inside out and essentially allows your body to process more oxygen to your working muscles so that you can make your engine go. Easy running helps you build that foundation and it manifests inside of you over a period of months and weeks, or sorry, weeks and months and years and manifests in you changes to your body at the cellular level. You add mitochondria to your cells. You add more red blood cells to your bloodstream. You improve your red blood cells ability to carry oxygen. You actually add blood vessels to your working muscles. You build more capillaries. You improve your lungs ability to carry oxygen and you improve your lungs ability to pass oxygen into your bloodstream. All of those physiological changes that are happening at the cellular level take time and they are facilitated and accelerated by running more easy volume. Again, from whatever your starting point. And so to the extent that you can over time add a little bit more consistent volume, given whatever constraints you might have, then you're going to see more improvement. And that volume also makes your body more resilient if you build gradually, makes your body more resilient to training loads so that you are going to become better, faster, stronger, and potentially more injury-free along the way. So if you're that person who struggles with injury, let me suggest a period of time where you just add easy volume to your routine. Perhaps you don't do any speed work at all. Perhaps you manage the other things in your life so you can focus on building the resilience around adding volume. And you just focus on adding days to run and adding volume on those days to a point that's maybe 15 to 20% higher in terms of miles per week than you've ever been. Just focus there. Do all of that running at easy efforts. Get to a place where you feel like you can do that strongly and sustainably and then and only then add back speed work to your routine. If you do that, then I believe you'll ultimately be able to build to a stronger, faster version of yourself. And I think you'll surprise yourself in terms of your ability to sustain injury-free running if you establish that foundation first. So mistake number one. There's a lot of people who just simply aren't running enough. All right. Now, mistake number two. And a related mistake is, and sometimes I see this happening really at all levels of experience in running. But mistake number two is skipping recovery days. Skipping recovery days. Now, this can come in the form of somebody who, as I mentioned just just a few minutes ago, somebody who's not doing enough of those filler days as it is. That easy, active rest, really, really critical. But it can also come in the form of that, that experienced runner who may just be cramped for time and who decides to skip that short recovery day because just couldn't squeeze it in and wanted to instead focus on the, the long or the hard days. 
And that is a recipe for injury. I've said this before, and I'll say it a hundred times. One of the most common causes of injury, I think, in the sport of running is going from fast day to fast day or fast day to long day or long day to fast day without active recovery, easy running in between those two days. If you skip steps and a step is recovery running, then you will end up injured because you need those short, easy runs where you're not worried about pace, where you may not be looking at your watch, where you're going out at a run that could be, again, 30 minutes up to 60 minutes could for some be 90 minutes if you're a higher volume runner. But you're doing it in a way where you don't care about time. You're just focused on movement so that you can, again, grease the wheels, so to speak, between those hard days and prepare your body for that next hard effort. So that's mistake number two, skipping those recovery days. Now, one part of skipping recovery days is just not doing it. But I will also think and say that another part of skipping your recovery days is doing a run that is supposed to be a recovery run, but ends up not being a recovery run where you get sucked into something too fast. Sometimes this is because you've got friends that are doing something too fast. And sometimes it's just because you can't get over your own ego. But part of skipping recovery days is maybe getting in a run, but that run not truly being a recovery effort. And you make it something else on that day. And so if you go out and you go too fast, then that's also skipping recovery days. Now, what's a sign of going too fast on a recovery day? Well, obviously your watch can tell you and you may already know what that looks like. But another sign of going too fast on a recovery day is when you finish a recovery day feeling worse than when you started or not better than when you started. Either way, you've missed the point of the recovery day. It means you've gone too hard. And by the way, that may not even be that hard. In many cases for me, my recovery days will be sometimes as much as three minutes per mile slower than my target marathon pace. Three minutes per mile slower than my target marathon pace. Let that sink in. And now again, what that pace is isn't necessarily my target. What my target is, is getting out, doing an easy conversational effort that essentially my body is dictating that my body is telling me how easy I need to run in order for it to feel like a recovery effort. So if if I'm listening to my body going slow enough, according to what it's telling me, then I should finish a recovery day finish feeling better than when I started. But if you go faster than that and force it a little bit, put too much pressure on yourself to go to a certain pace or maybe you start looking at your watch and your ego kicks in and you think well I should be going faster because that's going to tell me that I'm in a certain level of fitness none of those things are true or valid what matters is your body getting that recovery effort not running a certain pace and so ignore your watch ignore your ego 
Ignore all of those things and focus on easy movement so that you can then put more into your long run or more into your next speed day and then ultimately build to a faster version of yourself. Now, some people will ask me, they'll say, hey, you know, Chris, should my easy days, my recovery days be getting faster over time? And I'm, I'm here to say not necessarily. You know, I think on the margin, if if your overall aerobic fitness is building and your marathon pace is dropping, then yes, you know, likely your recovery paces will drop, but not necessarily. I mean, for me, just as an example, I did a half marathon yesterday, went out for a five mile easy recovery run today. I averaged north of 10 minute miles for that easy recovery run. Now, again, I'm not judging that pace relative to anybody else. But for me, that's about four minutes per mile slower than my target marathon pace. And so it was significantly slower than my target marathon pace. And it should have been. My legs were beat up. My legs were tired. I've been nursing a little bit of injury that was a little bit mad at me for the, for the effort. And so my job was to go as easy as my body was telling me not worry about my watch and hopefully finish that run feeling better than when I started mission accomplished. I got out, I, I moved and I felt better when I finished. The pace is absolutely irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. So keep that in mind. I know it's hard, but the ego needs to be put aside so that you can actually get the right training result so that you can fill, fulfill the training purpose for the day, which has nothing to do with your pace or your time and has everything to do with easy movement so that your body can then go put more into your long run or your speed day. And I can't tell you how many times I have to remind people of this point that I just made because I know it's counterintuitive. I know everyone's thinking, well, I need to go faster in order to get fast. And yes, you need to go fast at certain times for your speed work in order to get faster. But all the other days, and especially those recovery days, need to be done at easy effort so that you can then get the most out of those those hard days. So please, don't skip those easy days, whether you do them or not. Do them and do them at the right effort and you will be on track for this. All right, that's number two. Number three, and it's related and all of these really are related in some form or fashion. Number three, common running mistake I see is people going too fast all the time. And this comes in different forms. I think for those that are less experienced in this world who maybe haven't had the opportunity to train with a coach, that comes in the form of running essentially the same too fast pace all the time. And oftentimes I will see it or someone will describe going out and running a similar loop around their house and trying to beat themselves essentially day after day and comparing their times from the day before when they did it. And so what ends up happening is runners end up running essentially the same pace 
almost all the time and really maybe trying to race themselves all the time. And so that's the, the most basic form of this. And then, you know, the other form of this for perhaps that more experienced runner is you've got that person who's always pressing, pressing in the workouts, going a little bit faster than what the coach prescribed. Therefore, not necessarily being in the right training zone that their coach is trying to achieve. So there's that. Then you also have that person who might be going out for that easy run, pressing a little bit, looking at that watch, letting their ego tell them they need to be going faster. That's another version of this. And so they end up running too fast every day, which has two potential dangers. One danger is that you end up in the wrong aerobic zone and therefore you're truly getting suboptimal training stimuli on each of those days. So you're really not training what you're supposed to be training. That's one. The second thing that ends up happening is that these individuals will get hurt because they're pressing their body too much all the time. And so what you want to see is that your pace is modulated significantly from run to run, from day to day, from workout to workout, potentially, if you've got different paces prescribed by your coach. And so you want to see that modulation happening and and resist the temptation to always be hammering the pace. Especially, I think this is true for half marathoners and marathoners, because what's important in training for half marathon and marathon especially, and really this is true of I think the 10K as well, but you're trying to improve your efficiency. And so in workouts, if you go too fast and let's say your coach has prescribed tempo effort or half marathon pace, those are very similar places to be in training. Let's say your coach has prescribed that. Theoretically, that's a pace that you can hold for 13.1 miles. I would imagine that hypothetically, you're also getting a workout where you're doing shorter intervals at that pace. So it could be, for example, you could be going case you could be doing miles you could be doing a four mile tempo run at that pace but you're going to be doing some workout that has intervals in distance that are shorter than 13.1 miles and if you can hold that pace truly for 13.1 miles then theoretically a workout where you're doing shorter intervals than that shouldn't be that hard and so that means when you're doing that workout you've got some room to push if you want to. And often there is that temptation because you can. But simply because you can doesn't mean you should. Because once you start pushing, and let's say you maybe drop down to 10K pace in that workout, then you're in a completely different aerobic zone than your coach has prescribed. And you're also on the edge with the neuromuscular system in a way that your coach hasn't prescribed. And so you're doing potentially two things wrong suboptimizing your aerobic training as well as potentially putting your neuromuscular system at risk. That's what happens when you go too fast in a workout. When you go too fast on an easy day or recovery day, as I just described, then again, 
You're risking being in the wrong aerobic zone to build that aerobic capacity, that aerobic foundation. You might be in a aerobic zone that starts to fine tune the aerobic system more specifically. But for those easy days, you want to be building capacity, aerobic capacity, aerobic foundation. So not only do you risk not being in the right aerobic zone to get the benefit of that easy day, but again, also you risk putting too much pressure on your neuromuscular system, which can cause injury. So those are the risks of going too fast all the time. And so what happens? What happens when people go fast, too fast all the time? Well, they're training a suboptimal. They likely will get injured. And even if they don't get injured, if they can survive, then what will happen is eventually it will catch up to them either in the form of a, of a plateau where they struggle getting faster. They kind of reach a certain point at a certain race distance and can't go beyond. Or maybe it's a plateau of injury where they just can't get over this nonstop training injury cycle. They kind of get stuck. This happened to me when I was early in my running career before I really realized and knew all that I know now. I would I would go too fast all the time. And it manifested in a stress fracture, training for my first marathon, which I've talked about. And it also manifested in a plateau, a training and performance plateau where I was trying for the longest time to break 38 minutes in the 10K and I just couldn't do it. And the problem was, in addition to other mistakes, I was going too fast all the time and not really properly building my aerobic foundation that would allow me to sustain that target 10K pace for a full 6.2 miles. And so please do not make this mistake. Again, set your ego aside. Slow down when you should be slowing down. Focus on the target paces your coach is giving you. And if you can go faster, don't. Instead, try to be efficient and try to make those target paces feel as easy as possible. That's where the magic is in training, especially for the distance events. That's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck instead of beating your head against the wall in training if instead you learn control and being smooth and running relaxed. That's where the magic is. So, so seek it. So that's number three. Number four. Again, all of these are kind of related and we're flowing through them in a way sequentially that makes sense. But number four is, number, if number three is going too fast all the time, number four is not varying your pace enough, particularly on those easy days. And so I kind of like to think of it like there's really three different, well, you could probably even say four, but we'll say three different easy paces. And again, maybe this is a bit of an oversimplification, but we'll use it for example purposes. You have recovery easy pace. You have medium long run easy pace. And then you have long run easy pace. Three different easy paces that all should look different. I think you could probably even name a fourth there, but I won't. Recovery run, medium long run, long run, easy pace. All should look a little bit different. 
And you should never, ever be comparing runs within a, within a week, easy runs especially, and thinking, oh, man, if I didn't run nine-minute mile today because I ran that on my medium-long run this week, if I can't run that for my long run, then I'm doing something wrong. No, it doesn't matter. If the effort's supposed to be easy, then is the effort right? I don't care what the pace is telling you. But in general, because of that focus on effort, because of the fact that you should be concerned less about a specific pace on a day and more concerned about achieving a specific training outcome and recognizing that there's a huge range at which you develop aerobic capacity in the easy effort level. And it's a range that probably extends three to four minutes per mile. Then you should see variation in those easy runs. I like to see medium long run pace. Typically that's going to fall anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute and a half slower than your target marathon pace or one minute to two minutes slower than your target half marathon pace. That's medium long run effort. Long run effort, one minute to two minutes slower than your target marathon pace or 90 seconds to two and a half minutes slower than your target half marathon pace. Recovery run, that should be at least two minutes per mile slower than your target marathon pace or two and a half minutes slower per mile than your target half marathon pace or slower. And that range can extend well beyond that, including for me today where I was running four minutes slower than my target marathon pace and four and a half minutes slower than my target half marathon pace. If you're not seeing variation in your easy runs, then you're probably not focused on the right things. You're probably more focused on pace and you should be more focused on effort. So you should see some variation, which means that when you go do a medium long run, you can finish that medium long run feeling better than when you started. When you go do a long run, you can finish that 16, 18, 20, 22 miler feeling better than when you started. Now, I know that's a novel concept, but it is potentially true if you go easy enough. Yeah, the legs should be sore. You should be beat up, but you shouldn't feel finish feeling debilitated, finish feeling like you can't have run a little bit more when you get back. That means you probably didn't take that long run easy enough. Recovery run, same thing. I've already said you should finish a recovery run feeling better than when you started. And if you don't, then you've definitely defeated the purpose of a recovery run. So, the moral of the story here is pace modulation matters. Not for the sake of pace modulation, but for the sake of effort modulation so that your body can get what it needs when it needs it. It can get aerobic foundation building when it needs it. It can get recovery running when it needs it. And if you don't see variation in these runs, you're probably doing something wrong. So think about that to try to get the most out of your performance. So that's number four. Number five. And again, these are all kind of flowing from each other. Number five, running race pace 
in all of your long runs. Now I see this a common mostly for for marathoners, but I think it can be true for half marathoners as well. And there's this mentality that people need to go out and run marathon pace during their long runs and just extend the time at which they can run marathon pace. And eventually you'll hear people say, oh, well, I did 18 or 20 miles at marathon pace. So now I know that I can run marathon pace on race day. And let me just say, don't do that. That's not what we're trying to accomplish at all in training. In fact, it completely defeats the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. And yes, there is a time and a place to run marathon pace in your long runs, but that shouldn't be done more than two to four times in a training cycle. And it should be done in a very prescriptive way inside of long run workouts that are built specifically to help prepare you for race day not just go out and run marathon pace for longer and longer periods of time to somehow prove to yourself that you can do it on race day. Every year I do an Austin marathon course talk and we'll do that at Rogue usually a couple weeks before the marathon. We'll invite anybody who wants to come hear me, whether you're a Rogue member or not, hear me talk about the Austin Marathon and core strategy for the Austin Marathon and Half Marathon. This year, we've got that coming up on February 7th at 6.30 if you want to join. But always a good talk. We always get a range of people. You know, We'll have 100 plus people there. Always get a range of people, some that are newer to the marathon, some that are more experienced. We'll get people that have trained with us through Rogue and people who haven't. And we'll get marathoners and we'll get half marathoners. We'll get a huge range and that's always fun. And it seems like almost every year I'll have somebody come up afterwards and ask me, hey, what can I do for my marathon? What time should I target? And this will be typically somebody who isn't training in our group. So say, what, what time can I target? I did a 20-mile run at 10-minute miles, and I'm trying to run 10-minute miles on race day. And usually if somebody has that to me then in my head I'll scream and then I'll try to very patiently talk them through the process otherwise but in my head I'm screaming thinking no you've just blown you've just blown it you've blown it you should not be running marathon pace for your long runs for your entire long run it defeats the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish marathon pace first of all, is not a phys- does not provide the physiological benefit that you might be seeking. It doesn't. In fact, marathon pace is kind of in this no man's land physiologically. It's actually in a suboptimal physiological development place where you kind of aren't really doing anything. And yes, there's a time and a place to run marathon pace, in certain chunks and windows so that you can practice running marathon pace and dial into that pace, but you should not be running it for an entire long run because it's actually in a counterproductive aerobic development zone that also puts you at risk for injury. So don't do it. Don't do it. If you run easier than that, it actually puts you 
back into an aerobic development zone that is productive, that will help you run that faster marathon pace on race day. And so when somebody comes up and tells me, hey, I ran 20 miles at 10 minute pace. Do you think I can run 26.2 at 10 minute pace? Generally, my answer is no. You blew it. You've already, you've, you've wasted that run. You've maybe already run your race in one sense or in another sense, you've wasted 20 miles by being in a counterproductive aerobic zone. So don't, don't do it. If you're going to do race pace, that's fine. Do it in smaller chunks inside of a bigger long run where you're also running easier paces or do it inside of a workout during the week that helps you dial into that pace or recover or learn to recover at that pace. But don't, please do not go run long runs, entire long runs at race pace, especially at marathon pace that is completely counterproductive. And that's something that I hear about more often than I probably should. So it had to make this list. All right, that's number five. Number six, do not be a slave to your watch. Common training mistake, being a slave to your watch. Instead, I want you to learn to feel. Learn the efforts. Learn to dial into a certain pace without having to look at your watch. And so I think this particular one breaks down in a lot of different ways. There's a few different ways that this can be a problem. I'll start with the most basic, which is that those that are slave to their watches are potentially obsessed with it and therefore end up doing something like one of the other mistakes I mentioned, running too fast all the time, letting their ego get in the way because they're trying to achieve a certain result on their garment so that they can then share it on Strava and impress their friends. So that's one way. Another way is that you're so, so obsessed with looking at your watch that you lose track of the ability to feel it out yourself, that you forget how to dial in to a certain pace without having your watch and then what happens when you're in Houston and the first mile is through the buildings downtown and your watch is completely wrong because of the GPS connection not being solid and so then you panic because you don't know what to do or maybe you run the wrong thing because you're actually trying to follow your watch anyway in fact I saw a tweet from a really fast runner who was trying to, to qualify for the Olympic trials this past weekend in Houston, who ended up going too hard at one point because of the GPS issues in the Houston and ultimately running in trouble, not getting the goal because of this. And I was just, you know, a little bit frustrated with that. I'm like, come on, we have to learn to operate without our watch not only for reasons like that, but also because it makes you a better runner. It makes you more efficient. If you can, instead of worrying about what your watch says, and by the way, it's not that accurate within small windows, especially instead of worrying about that, you're lear- you're learning to dial into your effort, learning how something should feel so that you have those other, other physiological t- 
clues from your senses to tell you are you doing the right thing or not. And so I highly recommend that you learn to do workouts without being a slave to your watch. Now, that doesn't mean checking in on it or not checking in on it, but it does mean not looking at it perhaps during an interval. And let's say your coach has prescribed 800 meter intervals. Go out, do an interval at the prescribed pace slash effort, and don't look at your watch until you get to the end and see what that first interval tells you. And then adjust from there. That gives you a data point from which you can adjust. If you're too fast, slow down a little bit. Then go do your second interval without looking at your watch until the end of that interval and see what it says. And then adjust from there. Use it as a, as a thing that's giving you periodic data points. But don't forget to learn how to feel. Because when you feel... I think that not only gives you the opportunity to better put yourself in position to be in the right training zone, but it also teaches you to run more more relaxed, run more efficiently, be more dialed in with how your body's feeling instead of what your watch is telling you, which ultimately is going to make you a stronger runner. So practice it. And it means that you you might make mistakes. You might not be perfect. And that is completely okay. That is a part of the process. That's what we want to see. And or sometimes this might mean doing an entire workout without looking at your watch. Maybe splitting the laps, splitting the intervals so you have the data. But do an entire workout by feel without looking at the watch. Then go upload the data. Take a look at the data. See what it tells you. Calibrate the data versus the effort that you felt like you were putting out in that workout take your lessons, and then go back to the next workout. I think that type of practice done periodically is really important because your watch can't run the race for you. And in fact, I think it's gotten in the way of runners being efficient and smooth because instead of learning to dial into an effort and finding a certain rhythm, people are constantly looking looking at their watch and therefore a little bit uptight not relaxed, a little bit yo-yoing all over the place because their watch is going to yo-yo within a certain interval. And so practice not using it all the time so that you can learn to feel, learn to run relaxed. Also, maybe occasionally run an easy run without looking at it. Or even more radically, run an easy run without your watch on and just Go out and run based on how you feel so that you don't have that temptation to run a certain time when you're out there. So that's mistake number six is being a slave to your watch. And yes, watches can be useful tools and can provide useful data, but they should not stand in the way of you being able to learn to dial into paces and efforts, especially without using it. All right. That's number six. Number seven, common training mistake. Letting injuries linger until you break and have to take a longer break from training. I talk a lot in episode 165, if you haven't listened already, about managing injury and being proactive in managing injury. 
I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I see this all the time in in coaching where somebody will say, hey, I'm broken. Doctor says I'm broken. I have to take time off. And I'll ask somebody, okay, well, how'd this happen? Give me a little bit of the history. And then they'll describe a period maybe that started four to six weeks ago where that pain started to build and they didn't do anything about it until eventually it became a bigger and bigger problem and it broke them. And what is inevitable in our training is injury. That is inevitable. And so it's going to come. And if you're pushing your body hard, you're going to have little issues pop up. But it's so important to be proactive about those injuries. And at the first sign of a pain that's out of whack, do something to intervene. Could be self-inflicted initially or self-motivated. Go out, jump on the foam roller. Go get that massage you've been neglecting. Do the strength and the mobility work you've been neglecting. Go look up in a book like Running Rewired on how you can rehab the issue that you might be manifesting. Go to a provider proactively to help them help have them help you figure out what's going on so that you can prehab before you need to do rehab. And so just be proactive. It is really critical. And over time, you'll learn better and better strategies for doing that. It's going to manifest in a lot of different ways that, you know, little pains, little niggles. But if you're in this running game long enough, you'll have almost any injury that you could potentially have as a runner. And you'll learn patterns of behavior that help you work through those pains. And especially most of us tend to have common issues popping up. You'll, you'll learn to manage those common injuries that are common to your individual body your your individual running form. And so just be proactive when little issues pop up manage them appropriately so that you don't have to then three to four to five weeks down the road completely take uh, an entire break which then will of course affect your overall fitness so stay ahead of those injuries that's number seven and number eight number eight common running mistake training mistake and this will be my last today there are probably others i could have talked about and if you have others would love to hear about them you can email me Chris at roguerunning.com. But number eight, the last one here is not choosing a peak race. Not choosing a peak race. And this, I think, happens all the time where you get people who are serial racers who maybe have a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out, and can't help themselves at jumping into you know races all the time. And there's nothing wrong with racing frequently potentially, but I'm a firm believer that every race should have a purpose and that your training cycle should be building to a peak race where you're putting all of your eggs in one basket and trying to get the most out of that race. Not only is that a necessity from a training standpoint, if you think about the principles of getting to peak performance, periodization is one of those. And so you have to periodize your training leading up to a peak. So that's one part of that. But two, if you race too much, then you're going to end up sacrificing the overall plan for a given race and therefore compromising maybe that big end result. And so what I like to see runners is pick a peak race 
And then yes, maybe pick some build races. But those build races along the way should have a purpose. They should be especially constructed in order to get to that peak, in order to give yourself the best opportunity to put your best foot forward on that big day, which might mean doing a prep race all out. Certainly that's a possibility with the right recovery around it inside a training cycle. Usually that manifests in doing a race all out that's shorter in distance than your target race. Or it could mean using a race as a training opportunity and trying to execute that race in a certain way in order to get a certain training benefit or maybe even a race execution lesson. And so all of those things can be true, but choose that peak, put a big goal associated with it, gear your training towards that peak so you give your you give yourself the best opportunity to put your best foot forward on that day. If you do that, then you will see yourself reach higher potential than if you just do a bunch of races and none of them really fit together and none of them make sense and none of them are the one you've circled on the calendar as the big day. If you do that, it's okay. And you might get some results. But will you get your peak result? Will you get the most out of yourself? I think not. And as a part of that, I believe you have to choose really only two or three peak races a year two or three races depending on the distance that you can really circle and go after 100%. Does that mean, again, that you can't race more than that? No. It just means that if you want to get the absolute best, the absolute most out of yourself, then you'll choose two or three peaks a year and gear every other race you do and every other training block you do towards those peak races in order to get the most out of yourself. It's, I know it sounds scary, putting a lot of eggs in one basket. But if you do it, then you will get the most out of yourself. And even if you don't, you'll have another chance down the road. And that is key. But commonly, I see a lot of people racing too much or not choosing a big peak race. And as a result, they're kind of doing everything all the time and not really optimizing anything. And that's not what we want for you. So be bold enough to choose a peak. And I promise you, you will find a higher peak than maybe you ever thought possible. So there you go. Eight common training mistakes that I see. Again, some of those are probably recap. Some of those maybe added some nuance that you hadn't heard from me before. If you have a friend that's making one of these mistakes who hasn't listened to the podcast, please share. We always love to pick up some new listeners. Otherwise, with that, we will wrap this episode 166 You can always check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Or you can follow me at Rogue Chris on Instagram, at Chris McClung on Twitter. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.